0: What truly really matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
1: 44% of jobs will be automated.
0: It reinforces
2: cycles of disadvantage.
3: Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 22 of the Education Research Reading Room, a podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Marnie Shea. Marnie is an Aboriginal educator and researcher who is passionate about social justice, equity and community-driven research. Marnie's maternal connections are to Wagaman country, Northern Territory, and she also has strong connections to Aboriginal communities in southeast Queensland, where she was raised. Miney is an experienced secondary school teacher in flexi schools and has worked in diverse community school and TAFE settings with disenfranchised young people. Her academic teaching for pre-service teachers has included programs on Indigenous education and how to create positive learning environments for students. Mani is a qualitative researcher who works with Indigenous peoples across urban, regional and remote communities, particularly in diverse school settings. She has developed a collaborative yarning or storytelling methodology, as well as other creative methodologies for undertaking ethical research in Indigenous communities. This research has led to culturally and contextually relevant outputs developed by Indigenous young people, including clothing items and texts that creates voices on identity, health and wellbeing. Her research findings have resulted in school-wide reviews and changes to the way that Indigenous education is undertaken, ensuring both suitability and sustainability of programs. In this episode of the EDPLA, Marnie discusses her experience in flexi-schools and what she's learned about how to work with disenfranchised young people in these settings. We talk about making the curriculum more people-centred rather than content-centred. We touch upon school exclusions and, when faced with violent behaviour, the challenge of balancing the needs of the individual with the needs of the group. And Marnie shares some stories of her times in flexi schools. The second half of the interview is dedicated to Marnie's recent career as an education researcher. We hear about the challenge of navigating gatekeepers, the complexity of the ethics process, and whether or not statistics collected on minority groups are empowering or disempowering. Finally, Marnie offers some fantastic suggestions of researchers and authors that listeners may like to check out. Before we jump into the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insights, interesting and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter, blogs and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week's email included articles on keeping your priorities straight within a school setting, the importance of curiosity, an argument for the use of instructional coaching in schools, the idea of concept creep, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to this weekly email, just jump onto ollilovell.com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into episode 22 of the Education Research Reading Room with Dr. Marnie Shea. Marnie Shea, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room.
1: Thank you. good to be here.
3: Fantastic. All right. The first question we usually ask our guests when they come on the ERRR is, if we're at a party and someone says, hey, Marnie, what is it that you do? What's your answer?
1: I like to keep it really brief. And I just say, I teach and research at a university. And then I see what their reaction is. And if they look remotely interested in that, then I might expand on it and say what area I teach in or research in. But I I find that, you know, sometimes people, as soon as they hear you're in research, tend to switch off a little bit. So it depends on what type of party I'm at, I suppose.
3: Got it. Well, tonight you're at the kind of party where people ask more (laughs) questions. So here we go. (laughs) Okay. Can you give us a bit of a brief overview of your career to date?
1: Yeah, I can. I mean, the reason I chose especially one of the readings was because it it sort of did give you a bit of a a background as to where I've been and what I've done. But in short, you know, I've got a bit of a diverse background. I, I am a trained teacher and I have worked as a teacher, but I have also worked in community services as well. So I didn't start off in teaching. I did do a Bachelor of Indigenous Studies straight out of school. And then I started working in community settings. So I worked as a youth support coordinator with young people who were deemed at risk of disengaging from education. So I had case managed young people across a number of mainstream school settings, and I also coordinated an Indigenous employment project at two different universities. And then I just I just wanted to study, and because I'd been working in schools and listening to, you know, young people talk about their experiences with teachers and they were often quite negative I thought I could I could be a teacher I could hopefully do do a pretty good job of it so I went back and trained as a teacher and I did my training as a grad dip student as so a postgrad student and I did my placements in a high school setting with the department of education and training and it went well I got the best teacher rating I could you know got the s1 rating I got a great job offer but I also at the same time saw a job advertisement for a flexi school and having the background that I did as a youth worker, I thought, so that sounds pretty good for me. And also, you know, there was just some things about mainstream schools that I, that just didn't sit well with me. So I, I made the decision to teach in flexi schools. And so I started out at, at one school on the Sunshine Coast. And then I moved around, so I moved down to Logan and out to Inala in Brisbane. And I started a little flexi school, so that was a pretty cool experience. I I was a lead teacher and and enrolled the very first student there, so that that was an amazing experience. And then I taught in TAFE. So I taught for, I can't remember, about 18 months, teaching community services and Indigenous programs with Year 11 and 12 students that were coming in from school one day a week at TAFE. And then I just had to study again. I just had this urge to, to keep studying. And I started a coursework master's and it was fine. It was going pretty well, but I was a little bit, not bored of it, but I just felt like, you know, I wanted a bit more from it. So I had a colleague who worked in Flexi schools as well and, and they, they were doing their PhD at the time. And they said to me, you know, you should really think about research. And I had not much of an idea what research was, but uh, yeah, I got connected with an academic who had done some research in flexi schools, and the rest is sort of history, so so to speak. You know, what was in I was just intending on doing my masters and get you know doing some learning and reading and writing, and it took me on an academic career. Yeah, quite unexpectedly, I suppose. So that was back in twenty. 2012 yeah when I did my master's so I then got after I finished that I got a full-time academic role an early career researcher role so I enrolled straight away in my PhD with QUT and I worked full-time studied full-time and did my PhD finished that and then I just commenced this year at a different university at the University of Queensland and this role is really exciting So it was a step up in terms of, you know, my academic progression, but it's also got a component where I'm working as a research fellow in the Centre for Policy Futures, which is a great space for me to think about, you know, research impact and thinking about how my research can translate into policy development and informing better policy. Hmm.
3: Fantastic. You're an Indigenous researcher and often a thing that's anonymous with indigeneity in Australia anyway, these acknowledgement of country. So listeners of the podcast will know that mm. I always do this thing, acknowledgement of country at the start, and I'm sure a lot of international listeners are kind of wondering what's going on. I also note that at the start of your Flexi Schools paper, you also did an acknowledgement of country. And so I was wondering if you could explain to listeners a little bit about what, what this is all about and why it's significant in Australia.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So there's two, two sort of phrases that get thrown around. So there's a welcome to country and an acknowledgement of country. A welcome to country is, is done by traditional owners or custodians of that area, and they have permission to perform a welcome. Sometimes it's done in, you know, in dance or song, or it's, it's delivered by elders or people that are culturally nominated to do that. And an acknowledgement can be done by anyone. So as you said, Ollie, you, know, you do an acknowledgement, which is, it really makes me happy when, when people do that. But it's sort of become this thing where a lot of people sit there and they think, Why on earth are we doing that? So I'm really glad that you asked that question. And there's a couple of reasons. The first is that, you know, it's just basically it's a protocol of of respect and it's it's asking people to sit and reflect and think about the land that we are standing on and the fact that, you know, we all benefit from the dispossession of the many Aboriginal peoples that were living on this country before, you know. British colonised or invaded Australia. And the second, I was always taught this through my family in that, you know, people often have this myth about Aboriginal people being, you know, wandering around the country and sort of, you know, the whole, what's it called? There's a stereotype. Nomadic. Nomadic. And and so in some ways that was true. Pe- people Aborig- Aboriginal people did move around but for different reasons, for, for food and ceremonies and other reasons, but there was, you know, no one would walk on another person's country without first asking permission to be there. And that's a protocol that, that we carry out today. So when my family go on country, you know, we sing out to the ancestors and ask for permission to be there. So it has different meanings to different people, but it's something that non-Indigenous people can definitely have in their, in their practices. And in a, in a really meaningful way, if they do think about what it is they're, they're doing, rather than it just sort of being something you, you're ticking off. Thanks
3: for sharing that, Marty, and and thanks for also making the clear distinction between welcome to country and acknowledgement. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes I've seen in lo- so many schools I have visited is they say now we're going to do a welcome to country, and it's just one of the you know non-indigenous teachers giving it or something. It's just, I think that's a clear distinction, to, important clear distinction to make. Okay, so for the first paper we're discussing tonight is your paper entitled Reimagining Indigenous Education Through Flexi Schools. So I thought a good place to start would just be what is a Flexi school and what do they hope to achieve?
1: Well, Flexi schools are defined quite differently. So in Australia, academic called Kitty Tarila has done a lot of work in mapping, you know, what Flexi schools look like in Australia. Essentially, they're for young people that have been disenfranchised from mainstream schooling. So in, in various ways, they're providing young people who've been pushed out of the mainstream system to re-engage with education, learning or training in some way. In the international literature, it's, you know, it looks quite differently. They might encompass things like you know, Montessori and other what's considered alternative educational approaches. But in Australia, you know, we, we talk about flexi schools in terms of schools that are providing young people another opportunity to engage in education the distinction between schools that are longer term and shorter term is an important one to think about because the shorter term options are often remedial based programs that are uh, focused on changing the behavior of young people to you know get them back into mainstream school settings and I'm interested to hear from from you you guys there about the sort of flexi schools that you're in and the schools that Flexi schools I'm interested in are the ones that are doing school differently. They're changing the, the ways that, you know, education is delivered. What was the second part to that question?
3: What do they hope to achieve? What do flexi schools hope to achieve?
1: Well, it depends on what sort of flexi school it is. So if it's a short-term flexi school option, that what they hope to achieve is to fix the young person and fixes in, in yeah, I'm sort of using inverted co- commas there.
3: Oh, we, can't, we can't see it on the podcast, but yes, inverted <laughs> yeah. commas are being used.
1: Yeah, I do like them a little bit. You would have noticed from that chapter. Yeah, and stick them back into mainstream settings. But, you know, if it's a longer term option, then the hope is to support young people with their social, emotional needs to hopefully, you know, that they finish whenever they finish, you know, literate and numerate and ready for the workplace. There's very limited research or knowledge about how young people finish in flexi schools because they're, they're not really well-researched, to be honest. So we don't really know what outcomes they're providing young people, but that's the hope anyway.
3: Mm. Speaking of inverted commas, in, in your paper, you put the phrase "disengaged young people in, in yeah. inverted commas. I was wondering, why did you do that? What was that all about?
1: I did that because language is important and disengaged is a term that that gets thrown around a lot. But what it does is it problematizes young people. It puts the issue onto them. And, you know, the focus is always to look at how the system's failing or should be how the system is failing young people. I don't think young people wake up in the morning and think, I want to be a school failure. I don't want to do very well at school. I want to be labelled disengaged. So to me, young people that, that have fallen out of the system or been pushed out of the system, you know, they, they've been disenfranchised, not really disengaged. But it is a word that gets used a lot.
3: I, I guess that's related to something else I spotted in your paper, which I found quite interesting, which was you talked about the significance of placing the locus of change on the educational providers rather mm. than the young people. I was wondering if you wanted to talk to that and maybe elucidate how that occurs or does not occur within flexi schools.
1: Yeah, so it's really connected to the, the previous question, that one and it's very significant because what flexi schools are doing is they're not saying hey young person you know your behavior is a problem or your mental health issue is a problem or your family situation is a problem for us as a school so what they're doing is they're saying we understand the complexities of your life and we want to support you you know to achieve your you know your education and you know it takes a lot of effort to and i'm speaking to an audience that that's doing you know at the coalface face of it it take, it takes a lot of effort to do things differently and and change the the ways in which we are doing education it takes emotional time it takes it takes a lot of resources and yeah it it, it is significant to, to do that and and that's why i wrote a conversation piece recently because I want to get it out there, particularly when you're looking at flexi schools, they're engaging huge numbers of Indigenous young people, in particular, and there's very little accountability around it. Mm. And I think there's, you know, two ways of looking at it. There's focusing on, hey, these schools are engaging really high numbers of Indigenous young people. That could be a good thing. Let's look into that. But then also, there's, they, you know, there's a level of accountability that that's not there when you look at it comparatively to mainstream school settings.
3: Mm, and that conversation piece was, was great. And I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And I think that's actually how I came across your work and what subsequently oh. led to this, this interview. So yeah, a good, right. a good link to make there. Something I found particularly powerful in your FlexiSchools article was the story you told about your transition in approaches from your first to second year within Flexi Schools and the way you approach your teaching. I was I was hoping you would give listeners a bit of an insight into that change of heart that you had.
1: Yeah, and to me it was unlearning. It was thinking about what I had been taught, how it really didn't work for that context. Mm. And giving myself that permission to say, oh to yeah, to say that didn't work at all. And and I'm gonna give something different a try. And it's also being really open on a personal level you know people forget that teaching such a human-centered activity and it was it was really thinking about all of my social historical cultural etc experiences and and why i I was so fixed on doing things in particular ways
3: so maybe sorry i'll just interrupt you briefly could you just let us know what you are unlearning. So for listeners who haven't read the article, what did you do in your first year? How did you approach the teaching and then what changed into the second year? Sorry to interrupt.
1: No, that's okay, Ollie. Definitely, like I can think of one really practical example. You know, I think one of the things that was really drilled into into us in our teacher training is, you know, to be organized, to be planned, to have a, you know, really robust curriculum ready to, you know, deliver to these young people who will be so grateful to you know for, for my planning and I had my very first semester out of flexi school so I'm a first year teacher you know and I, I'm teaching in a flexi school and although I had the youth work background and I and I feel like I had really good strategies for engaging with you know lots of diverse young people I had a pretty tough group and they were mostly boys and they were in the junior school and and no matter what I tried I just they just were not buying what I was bringing in, and I had spent a really long time planning it. So I was getting—I didn't realize it at the time—but I was getting really annoyed with them, with you know, with the young people for not appreciating how much time and energy I'd spent <laughs> on it and how brilliant it was. But I—I I was probably—I was blaming them, but I didn't realize I was blaming them at the time. And and I remember having a conversation with. Our principal that was more senior than the coordinator at the school. And he said to me, Why are you pushing through this? You know, put it back onto them and ask them what they want. And, you know, I'd ask them and they'd give me all these ridiculous answers. And he said, No, seriously, Marnie. Like the behavior was starting to get from bored to to really fairly disrespectful. And he said, just focus on getting to know them and, and say, you know, when you're ready to do the learning, come and see me, but I'll, I'll be in the staff room and I'll be really ready to do this job for you. But you just need to let me know when you're ready as a group. So we had this standoff and it took about a week and, and we were actually near the school was near a river. So they were so cheeky. They were bringing fishing rods to school. So they were getting picked up on the school bus and bringing their fishing rods toddling over to the river going fishing all day and then coming back but in between their their walk over to the river you know i'd be sitting there sort of outside so letting them know that you know i was i was wanting to to fix a problem and we just got yarning you know we'd have a little chat before they left for fishing after they left for fishing and it really did help build that relationship and Eventually, they did get bored of it. I think it only took about a week. And I had to talk to people's parents to explain what I was doing, of course, because it seemed a little bit unconventional. But it really just wasn't working. And, you know, and in that time, it gave me the space. And probably I thought about that for a long time afterwards, that I was getting fixated on what I wanted them to to do. And I wasn't wasn't listening to them, to be honest. Okay, so
3: that's what it looked like kind of addressing the issue halfway through the year or coming to terms with some of these issues in in that first year of teaching. When it came to your second year, I'm interested what you did differently or how you approached your new class differently. And explicitly, I thought a great place to start might be if you can remember the first lesson with your second year group or one of the second year groups of Flexi School students. What exactly did you do in that lesson to try to get on the right footing right from the get-go?
1: Oh, definitely. So, we, you know, as all teachers do, we had that nice break of Christmas and, you know, going to the beach and catching up with family. And so I was feeling, but I was always thinking about it and I thought that didn't work really that well. And, and I, I suppose not that I'm arrogant, but I was a little bit surprised because I had, you know, the ability to work with young people. I, you know, I had that, that professional background working in that youth space with really disengaged young people. So. It did surprise me a little bit and, and, and I thought about it and I thought what I need to do is just trust my instinct and actually utilise some of the skills I had from my youth work days and you know what didn't seem to work was spending all that time planning something that, that didn't work for that cohort. So in youth work, some of the approaches we use, obviously strengths-based, so realising that you know people know the answers to their own problems, looking at things that are working really well and also giving people as much agency as possible. And so I thought, I'm going to apply that in my teaching. And that's what I did. So I was up with my new principal and I said, I feel like, you know, this is what I did last time. This is what i like to do. She supported that. And I had all these really fun, great activities that I had from my youth work practices, getting to know you activities. Some of them were just plain out having fun with young people and so I spent the first day doing that second day I think we had some sports stuff on to break up the day as well and then by the third day I said look you know these are the curriculum areas I'm actually happy to put in the effort to rewrite the whole curriculum program around what what you'd like to learn but on the if we can make a deal that if you design it then you know then then you engage with it and they're all happy with that so that's that's
3: what I did. That's powerful.
0: Oh yeah. My name is Beth. I feel like I had a very similar experience to you in my first year of teaching, but I was at a mainstream school, but it was kind of like a mainstream school that was a bit more flexible. So they did actually support teachers to kind of go out and do a bit of planning in response to what the students were interested in. And they weren't, you know, really keen on us ticking off all the boxes, but I guess I had a yeah I had a really similar experience. So I had a student, one student in particular, who just didn't seem to respond to anything that I put forward. Even you know when it was kind of related to his interests, and he would say, "Well, I just don't want to be at school." And I felt like that was a huge barrier. And maybe there were other things that were going on in his life that he was quite angry about. But I was wondering whether you had any kind of suggestions about how you go about forming a relationship with a student who's in that kind of place where they're just like, I don't want to be here, you know, I feel really angry for a whole lot of reasons. Do you think that that relationship can be formed within a mainstream school or is there something about the Flexi school which makes that, you know, really unique space for building those relationships?
1: That's a good question. I think Flexi schools enable it in lots of ways, you know, the smaller student numbers, obviously flexibility around you know the way that you work but really at the heart of it it's just relational it's just about building relationships with young people and you know I had yeah a couple of young people that that I think about when you talk about that that student you know I've I've had those students too and for me it's just about persistence and it's about showing them that you're you're trustworthy you're worth you're worth you know putting their trust into you because. You know, a lot of young people have had really negative experiences with adults, whether it's at school or in their family settings, and they, they're they hesitant to to trust, you know, trust their teacher or, or, so yeah, I think it's possible. If I was in a mainstream setting, I would look for opportunities outside of the classroom to build those relationships and I would keep to a minimum, I guess, formal discipline if Unless, you know, if they're disrupting the class, then it needs addressing. But if they're sort of just sitting there quietly, not doing anything, I wouldn't personally sort of keep hustling them about it because then that will impede your ability to build that relationship. I've never had a young person who's persisted with that behaviour. It really is just a case of, of trying different things, going to football games if they play football outside of school. I'm very community-minded, so not just you know, obviously I'm connected to my Aboriginal community. So, you know, we do thing, lots of things, you know, community events and sports and things like that that I always try and attend. But particularly when you're working in the school setting, but there's lots of different ways outside of the classroom that you can, you know, just sit and have a yarn, sit and have a chat, or just say, for them to see that you're present in a space where they're not expecting you to and send a really powerful message.
0: Thank you. It's okay.
3: I'm curious. Oh, well, there was something something that kind of came up then. You mentioned like going to footy matches on the weekend. I can imagine some teachers listening and thinking to themselves, I don't have time to go to students' footy matches on the weekend. You know, my job's a teacher. I need to be there from, from nine till three or whatever. So is it that, for example, these footy matches take the place of the time that you would have spent planning originally? Or is it just the case that it's part and parcel of working in a school like this, that if you want to have success and support these young people in the way that that needs doing, you just need to go the extra mile?
1: Yeah, look, I I would go the extra mile irrespective of of what school I'm working in. You know, teachers' roles were never designed to be nine to three anyway, as you know. So, you know, you're working in a big school and you're caught up doing marking and planning and you're expected to do extracurricular activities anyway. But I don't know, to me it's a heart thing as well. You know, if you're if you're there and you're invested in, you know, really invested in in your job and wanting the best outcome for your students, then I just I don't know. I that's how I see and I do that in in my role, you know, currently. I still attend school events and, you know, I get young people, you know, who I've done research with and they'll invite me to they might be having a cultural event at school or something. And that's how I operate, I suppose. And I I understand that people have busy lives and, you know, I've got a busy life too, but it's about what you prioritize. And if you're, especially in a regional and a re- remote community, you you're going to find it very hard to teach effectively in a community that you don't understand. And the only way to understand it is to get out there and mingle with people and be seen and and participate in those types of events, whether you're an Indigenous or non-Indigenous community.
3: Great advice. I wanted to come back to when you talked about rewriting the curriculum with the the young people in in that second year. I'm curious to go into a bit bit more detail. What were some of the things that you came up with? First of all, what were their responses? What did they say that was important to them? And just to kind of reify things a little bit for our listeners, what were some of the exact projects that you did? What did they look like? How did you run them? How were students assessed even? if that was a requirement and something that you did? Yeah just, yeah, just to make it a bit clearer.
1: Yeah, so it was a little while ago, but I'll, I'll do my best to recall that time. Yeah, so basically they were non-authority subjects, so that gave me the ability to to write the curriculum and submit it to the Queensland Curriculum Authority. And and we could choose from a range of different subject areas. So maths and English were non-negotiable, but what within the, those curriculum areas, we were able to sort of talk do it, I guess, more thematic or or topic-based. And so young people often wanted real-life learning. They wanted to know, well, how do we do this? It was very applied what they wanted to learn. So, well, you know, things like, well, with maths, you know, I got them to think about what, what you'd actually use maths for. Some of it was for illegal operations, let's <laughs> put it, for, for some young people, enterprises, however you want to frame, frame it. Wow. You know, other young people needed it to know how to, how to budget. So some young people were living independently. Other young people needed it for, you know, maths in, in particular for, you know, planning to, to know how to save for their first car, things like that. So I got them to first think about, you know, in, within that discipline area, you know, w- what sort of things would you need to know for your life? So we'd sort of brainstorm and, and it was amazing what they came, came up with actually. So they chose the the subjects, they talked about, you know, wh- what they need the, the subject for. And then we, we also, we talked about the topic and we talked about the skills as well. So I'm pretty sure that was when the Queensland or the Australian Core Skills Framework was, yeah, all the buzz at, at the time. So it was also about the skills that they'd learned, And teaching in flexes also teaches you how to work around, you know, influxes of so young people transient of young people so you have you know some young people that are there for weeks and then they might have to go away for particular reasons and they come back so I tried to get them to think about it as a more project-based curriculum so that there were things that they could work independently on and yeah and that I could you know maybe deliver a little bit of content but but it was more sort of project-based and student student student-led so that they could yeah opt-in and out, not opt-in and out, but it would it would work around their attendance.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just curious, what do you think is the upper limit to class size for running the classroom in the way that you, you're describing?
1: Well, you know, it, that's a, that's an interesting question too, Ollie, because, you know, people often say, oh, you know, we can't do this. But I had 18 young people in that class, which was really quite high for Flexer School, but At I did have a full-time. Time youth worker with me, and she's absolutely amazing. She's from the community and had a great relationship with the young people. So, and we worked as a team. It wasn't, you know, I'm the teacher and that's the youth worker. It was, you know, we worked very much as a team. But, you know, if you look at the needs of those young people, they were very high. We had young people that had been in and out of detention, were under orders, had been in care of the department, so child safety, had mental health issues, you know. A whole range of, you know, really full-on issues that they were dealing with. So, if you compare that with a cohort of, you know, thirty young people where they're coping with school, their needs are being met, you know, they might have issues every now and again, but that's not their day-to-day reality. I definitely think you can do that in a in a class of thirty young people. Yeah.
3: Okay. Cool. Hi, Moni. I'm Fraser. Hey. I had a question about so in Australia we have a national curriculum and the success matrix is judged through
0: NAPLAN and national standards. Do you think that in Flexi schools there could be an alternative way to judge or the success of teachers?
1: I think there should be a mechanism for evaluating not just the success of teachers, but how young people are exiting the flexi school system. NAPLAN, we know, doesn't work particularly well for, even for the the mainstream school system. So I don't know if I'd advocate that. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, the conversation piece that I wrote, I did talk about NAPLAN in it. And I actually got some phone calls from people in flexi school saying, hey, why are you saying, we're not doing NAPLAN tests and it reads like it's a bad thing. And I said, no, that's not what I was saying. I was actually saying it's a policy issue in Indigenous education Mm -hmm. that we're applying one way of evaluating the success of Indigenous young people in one system and applying an absolute, well, they're not applying any system, are they, in flexi schools for evaluating literacy and numeracy of, of any young people. So yeah, I think that there would be, I ideally, I'd love to work on on something. I know there's a few people that have talked about looking at at this very topic because it's something that that needs to happen. And I think it needs to incorporate more than just academic outcomes, because Mm -hmm. how do you measure the success? Like, I always think about, you know, some of the young people that I'm sure all of, you know, you're working with that come to the school and they, you know, might have you know issues with communicating with people you know without swearing for instance or you know the kids that come in they've got hair over their face and they Mm -hmm. grunt at you but you know by the end of them leaving they can you know they can have really positive conversations with people and you know how do you measure those sorts of outcomes i think i hate to see a system implemented that doesn't Mm -hmm. incorporate those either
0: yeah thank you
2: Hi, my name's Miranda. In one of your articles, I thought you had an interesting quote that said schools are often many, for many students, are their first introduction to institutionalized punishment. And so I just wanted to ask a question around the idea of punishment. And I guess thinking about whether that's kind of an ingrained aspect of the educational system, particularly in mainstream schools, that you think like whether there's a fundamental problem with the way the system works or whether there can be changes made. And I guess also thinking about that in terms of flexi-schools, whether flexi-schools, the ways that flexi-schools are able to challenge that kind of punishment mindset and that kind of approach to, in quotation marks, behaviour management that's kind of used in schools. and yeah. Yeah, I guess how how flexi schools actually do that so that punishment isn't the foundation for the way that we interact with students. Great question.
1: You know, I think that it's a it's a broader social approach, isn't it? This whole punitive thing. You know, you've done something, it's a binary thing. You've done something wrong, therefore you will be punished. The the grey matter is is getting a bit lost. So, I think that yeah, schools are very much I I wonder sometimes if it's a historical thing. That's what schools have always done. Therefore, they've sort of got to keep up this approach. And you can throw in a few buzzwords, you know, that that or catchphrases that have you know come up in education, you know, in that literature around behaviour management, as you said. But at the end of the day, it is quite a punitive system. Still, to me, flexi schools do have a different approach you know, the schools that I worked in, we didn't have rules. We had four principles and we worked with young people around those principles. So didn't matter what they were doing. We would always, you know, bring the conversation back to those principles. So it wasn't a, you know, you're breaking this or you're not doing this. It was engaging in a conversation about the behavior and trying to ask young people to help you solve the issue, which was it took years for me to really get that, I suppose, as a teacher because it's a really different way of working with challenging behaviours.
0: I just wanted to build on that question because I'm yeah, working in a flexi school and mm. have found that, you know, there's a lot of students who are kind of behaving in a way which is quite unsafe. So the, mm. these students have all got kind of really challenging backgrounds. They've had experiences of trauma that lead them to be quite violent in their responses when they're frustrated or they feel ashamed. It tends to be that they'll, you know, break something or lash out at somebody. And if we're trying to, you know, in a lot of other circumstances, it's quite easy to take a different approach to the punitive. But, you know, when people safety is at risk, we often tend to go okay well that student has to go home or you know that kind of is the default position and you know they might have a day to reset we call it and then they'll come back to school the next day but have you are you aware of any alternative to that because that's really a kind of more limited form of suspension and yeah pushing the student out of the space can often have negative consequences as well so Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if you're aware of any other kind of alternatives to that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a debate that happened, yeah, when I was working in the school. So I think it's it's a conversation that still happens in lots of yeah, lots of flexi schools. I would try things, depending on the young person. I'm thinking of one young person that I worked with who was able to remove himself so he, he knew where his triggers or what triggered him and he had fairly explosive anger issue. And we had a spot that he would go to. It was quiet, only he had access to it and he would remove himself and he was allowed to. So all of the staff knew exactly where he was going and why he was going there. And he would go and calm himself down. He had some strategies that he would put his, his psychologist with. So, you know, I, as his teacher and I was leading the school, I would work with, you know, external providers that were supporting young people, whether it's psychologists or speech pathologists or whoever, depending on the needs of the young person, to try and come up with those strategies as alternatives. But, yeah, it is it is something that it's a challenge that, yeah, I think flexi schools will continue to have in balancing the safety of all young people at the school and the needs of, of one young person. Sometimes the other thing I used to try, and this sounds really simplistic, but if a young person was sort of acting out or starting to steam, often I'd, I'd get food. Sometimes it had to do with their blood sugar and things like that. And believe it or not, it would it would often come situation. It sounds like that wouldn't work with this, this situation. But, yeah, I guess it's just, yeah, trying lots of different things.
0: Yeah, that kind of reminded me of, yeah, a lot of the students we work with. And one of the big issues is that they're often on meds so that yes. suppresses their appetite and they don't want to eat and I think that causes a lot of problems. I was wondering if you had any comments about or experiences of students who are on medications and how that might impact their experience of school.
1: Yeah, I worked with lots of young people on various medications. Uh, we would have, have to make sure that you know young people are taking medications at particular times but food is one of those things, you know, whether it's, prescribed drugs or, or otherwise that I just used to always I used to get them to preventatively eat if you like because yeah it, it's amazing what a young person's blood sugar that the, the you know the difference in their mood and their ability to process things and reason with you and 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 also water you know making sure they've got lots of water and and things like that but yeah that was that was something that we worked with as well
0: it's it's interesting that you say that because that's the kind of thing that is so important so fundamental but in a mainstream school teachers would never or you know very few teachers would think in that way or or look to those sorts of solutions and I think that's probably one of the best things about flexi schools is that you can you know when they come in the morning say what have you eaten and make or you know help them make breakfast so yeah it's pretty pretty good
1: yeah I agree a lot a lot of things can be prevented it sounds simplistic and people would yeah maybe laugh at you or whatever, but it it, it works.
3: Hmm. Behavior management strategy one, preventative eating.
1: Preventative eating. Yep. You can quote me on that, Ollie. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> didn't
3: teach us that at uni, so that's No. That's helpful to know. <laughs> On this topic of kind of discipline and punishment and things like that, you mentioned before that you dealt with a lot of young people who were in and out of detention and things like that. Mm. And I I mean, I was speaking with a colleague the other day and I quoted, you know, the fact that Indigenous people, to my knowledge, Australian Indigenous people are the most incarcerated people on earth per capita. Mm. And I stated that as a kind of way to talk about like systematic oppression, but his reading of that was, well, what what are they all doing wrong? Why don't they get up and, you know, do something and stop breaking the law. So why are we seeing? Why do we see such high rates of incarceration of young Indigenous people?
1: Another complex question. I mean, it's sort of, it, there's no one way of looking at it and it's interconnected with a whole myriad of, of issues, isn't it? First and foremost, we have to look at all of the unfinished business around history in this country. Now, history is one of those things where people go, oh, why are we still talking about this? And the reason we're talking about it is because history is still impacting on, on our communities and our people today. And that's just one indication of how colonisation is still impacting on, on the outcomes for our people. So it's not just prison rates. It's, you know, suicides. We've got one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Education is improving very, very slowly you know, in terms of school outcomes, but, you know, higher education outcomes just aren't there yet. There's hardly any Indigenous academics, which is a bit lonely for me. But, you know, that's growing as well, which is fantastic. But yeah, it, it it's not just sort of you we can't look at these things in, in you know, in a in one particular way. You know, prison rates are often connected to education and we know Although it's very, very, very slowly improving, education outcomes just aren't there. We know that the pathway for school disengagement to incarceration has been, you know, that's a path that's, that's well-established as well. And you've also got, you know, our people are still, some people are still dealing with racism, so accessing basic services. And the more regional and remote you go, you know, the higher the disadvantage on many scales. So yeah it's
3: that's a really complex question actually. Yeah yeah sorry to spring that one on you that well, that wasn't <laughs> that's in there right. wasn't in the script uh, but
1: that's a, that's okay. But yeah
3: I'm wondering because I find it's often being able to kind of understand things from like a story perspective that helps people to understand these really complex issues and it's fine if nothing comes to mind but does something come to mind in terms of when you think of a young indigenous person that you Worked within the flexi schooling system versus a non-indigenous person that you work within the flexi schooling system. We haven't talked that much about indigenous issues so far. We've been talking mainly about "quote unquote" disengaged young people more broadly. Mm. But is there something that's that's really markedly different about the experiences of these young people depending upon their background?
1: Absolutely, and you know what it comes down to is race, and race isn't something that I find many teachers in particular, but also many people in general want to talk about in Australia. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, you know, I I go back to to thinking about my practice in in Flexi schools and the sort of things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people would come and see me about and talk to me about and the sorts of issues that non-Indigenous young people would talk to me about were quite different. And that's not to say that non-Indigenous people weren't experiencing young people disadvantage, of course, but they weren't dealing with the issue of racism on top of it. And they weren't dealing with intergenerational trauma and, and lots of you know issues within their family and community on top of what they were dealing with. So in terms of difference, you know, it was outlook for me, like I always think about some of the Indigenous young people that I worked with, and I'm very lucky because I'm part of the community, you know, I, I get to see and, and hear from some of them and, and I sort of know where some, some of them have, have ended up. And, you know, and I think, yes, their outcome may have been maybe similar to, you know, some of the non-Indigenous young people that attended. But I know their stories and I know the hardships that they've faced as still as young people in their 20s. It's just incredible what the sort of resilience of our people and the sort of things that they put up with and live with. And they still continue to, you know, to do fairly amazing things, especially considering, you know, I've grown up, you know, personally around hearing and seeing, you know, my mum, who is Aboriginal, and seeing how people treat her and seeing how people treat my aunties and uncles just on the basis of their appearance. It's, you know, that's the individual racism stuff, but then you've also got the systemic racism that that Indigenous young people face. And in schools, it's really entrenched from the curriculum to how teachers treat them. I was in a school earlier this year and I'm still hearing stories from Indigenous young people about how their teachers you know, blame them for things. They don't think that they're going to go on to uni, they don't think that they're going to get a job, they talk down to them. You know that that sort of attitude is still there, and Australia needs to wake up and start you know talking about it, to be honest.
3: To what extent do you think that we actually need Flexi schools? Like could it be that we just offer these these pathways within mainstream education, or is there something, more structural about mainstream education that just that just can't cater for these young people and flexi schools are yeah having a separate premise with separate staff is hundred percent necessary.
1: Well, I think that's a a good question as well. And and bigger picture, we we shouldn't have flexi schools, really, should we? You know, we should fix mainstream schools so that there's not a need for them. Um, in terms of indigenous young people, that was sort of one of the things I tried to address in in the conversation piece was. We can't have this system, this other system, education system operating over there and taking huge numbers of Indigenous young people without even looking up at what's going on or, you know, seeing what the outcomes are or how it's addressing, you know, overall disadvantage for Indigenous young people. So, yeah, should they exist, They they're really addressing a need. You know, all of you there would know what sort of role they play. They're really important. Some of the young people you know, I remember working with, wouldn't, you know, I dread to think where they were, to be honest, if like this schools didn't exist. So they are playing a role, but really I'd love to see, you know, more systemic change to address the issues around why they exist in the first place.
3: Mm. All right. We might kind of make the transition a little bit more into the research space now. And as we make that yeah. transition, I was, I'm, in, I'm interested. I initially was under the impression you kind of made the choice to move out of out of schools and into research. It sounds like it was more of a kind of organic evolution of your (laughs) following your interests and things like that. But to what extent do you feel that now as an academic, you can have greater or less or different impact on the lives and the learning of young people when compared to you in the Flexi School?
1: I think having a a title helps. It helps get me a seat at the the table, especially – you know, in how I'm positioned as a, I guess I'm not really young anymore, but, you know, compared to some of my academic colleagues, I'm considered quite young. I'm a woman, I'm Aboriginal. So yeah, it's given me a voice in a way that, you know, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't have been listened to. And I think some people maybe underestimated my ability to get to where I am. And I can challenge some of the things I see now. I sit on boards and I, get asked to sit on committees and a whole range of different things. I get to publish and and have a voice in that way. So, yeah, I, I guess it's trying to have that impact at a more s- systemic level. I try and get out to schools in my research. I'm in schools, quite, especially flexi schools, quite a lot because I don't want to be disconnected from that. Mm. And they change all the time and I, I just don't want to be one of those people that talk about it and don't actually do it. So. Yeah, that's that was the aim. I, I didn't really mean to be to sort of get uh, be where I am, I suppose. But I but I'm here, and it has been a lot of hard work to get here. So I'm trying to use my position, yeah, to to continue to advocate for, especially for the work that happens in flexi schools and and for Indigenous education.
3: Keeping that connection with schools is something that you kind of touched on at the very start of your second paper. And your second paper was entitled Seeking New, New Paradigms in Aboriginal Education Research, Methodological mm. Opportunities, Challenges and Aspirations. Yeah. And I just wanted to read a quote and then kind of ask you to speak to it. This is out of your paper. Because I am now a researcher, how I approach Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff to participate will need to be how the university dictates is an appropriate method for contacting potential participants. I'm now formally the researcher, so bypassing formal hierarchies within the school that I want to include in my study was not only a bad idea, it would be considered an unethical process. Do you remember the moment that you realised that you were going to have to start operating in a bit of a different way? now that you were a researcher?
1: Yeah, there there were several of those. But yes, I do. And it probably wasn't until my PhD. So my master's study, I did a, a survey and I worked with school leaders. So getting access to the schools wasn't as much of an issue, I suppose, at that stage. But when I started to do my PhD and I knew I wanted to Specifically, include the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people doing educative roles in flexi schools. That was—I knew I wanted to do that—and I actually had lots of my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues from lots of different schools say, "Marnie, you've got to do this. If you're doing some this research, you—you know—can you please do this topic?" So, if you look at those structures and those guidelines, is outside of what they're telling you to do. They're telling you to as a researcher conceptualize the problem because it's very problem based research and then you know you go through a certain process in order to do your research but things are different in our for us for aboriginal people for lots of aboriginal people not that I'm speaking for all aboriginal people of course but you know at the end of the day you know our protocols look quite differently to to how an institution would go about consulting with community Actually, the the little story that I put in that paper was was when I had spoken to, you know, one of the really high up people that, you know, oversaw lots of flexi schools in one particular system. And, you know, he was all very positive about it. And that was great. I was thinking, wow, what if he wasn't? And also, who made him the gatekeeper of whether this is important? You know, I am Aboriginal. I've had lots of Aboriginal staff ask me to do this. And yet, here I am, sort of, you know, going to this non-indigenous man asking for permission to to do it because he was running the schools. That was the time when I thought, oh, this this just doesn't this just doesn't fit well with me. And so, there's a number of things that happened after that, and it still happens now as a researcher, you know, navigating systems in order to do what I I know is is good work, and it, it will challenge you know, some of the ways in which, you know, education systems continue to disadvantage Indigenous people.
3: Education research and research more generally is very much kind of posited from the Western paradigm. I'm wondering if there are other ways that you see kind of the the format or the practices of the academy, could I say, are shaping the your research in ways that you think are are limiting or or you know not as helpful as they could be to you researching things in the way you'd like to
1: Yeah we're very fortunate to have you know there's a quite a number of really prominent indigenous scholars that have have done a lot of theoretical and methodological work around this to kind of say hey You know, there's not to create binaries sort of, you know, there's Western ways of knowing, there's Indigenous ways of knowing, but it's saying, you know, ontologically that's, you know, how we do things can be different from, you know, a Western way of of understanding a problem. So understanding the knowledge but also how we do things, I suppose, as well and how we are. So I was able to draw from those scholars and use it in my own work and I, I continue to do that. But yeah, it's a challenge for Indigenous researchers, definitely. It, again, it's like the teacher training example, you know, you, you get trained in a particular way and people start the research journey and process and thinking, you know, I have to do so. People are obsessed with interviews. Interviews are, you know, how most research is, is done actually. And I never understood that because for starters in Aboriginal culture, for us, Sometimes asking direct questions will get you the complete opposite answer. And, and I know with especially Indigenous young people that we've been working with on a funded project for the past few years, if you know, the sort of knowledge we've got from them by not asking them direct questions has been just incredible. So, yeah.
3: I, I'm really curious. What's an example of a direct question you could ask to try to elicit some information from one of these young people versus what you would do in another way?
1: Okay. Yeah. Sure. So this is coming from our current current project, which is funded by the Lawitch Institute. So one example is, you know, we want to find out from Indigenous young people what they think about health, what they think is, you know, a healthy way of being. So, so both on their body, so f- physiological, but also, you know, as social determinants of health. So, you know, if you look at the the body of research you know most research is either surveys or interviews and asking direct questions well what we've done is we've actually used a creative method so we get a big canvas and we draw a blank body on it all the young people do and we sit with it visually so we're all sitting around it and we're yarning so we're talking and we say you know like what do you think health in a really basic way you know what do you think a healthy body looks like and so you know we'll say Everyone's got pens and you know, let's let's work this out as a group and you know, you show us what a healthy body looks like. So the sort of data we've got, we've got all these big canvases just full of text and writing and pictures from young people telling us that, you know, if you want to have a, a clear brain or a clear way of thinking, then don't do drugs. We know that because we learned it from this program at the Aboriginal Health Centre. So we sort of tend to ask more questions as they're writing it but it's less confronting because you know we're we're doing an activity and you know we're riding on this body and it's it's really just about them and so they move from the body then they say oh don't you need a house like do you need shelter to be healthy yeah, yeah you do so then they you know they go outside of the body and and then they write on the canvas in that way so that's one example
3: and what do you think, what kind of a response do you get if you just ask that in a paper and pencil slash face-to-face interview?
1: Would it be vastly different? Yes. Yeah. So they either, you know, just look at you and think, why are you asking me that? It's very personal and it's very confronting or they'll just tell you something quickly to make you go away. Got <laughs> it. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Make the threat go away. Yeah. Got it.
3: And another question is, I mean, is this something that's, particular to Indigenous young people. I mean, to me, this just kind of makes sense as a research methodology for working with young people more broadly. So so what would you say to that?
1: Oh, I agree. I think lots of things that we culturally we do, you know, I think could be applied in, in any classroom, even the, the concept of a yarning circle. You know, when you get people in a circle, there's, it changes the whole dynamic of a room. You know, there's not one person who's, you know, higher up, or you know, standing at the front of the room, people can face each other. It's less threatening. You know, that's the thing about Aboriginal knowledges is is people underestimate. You know, what it can contribute to to their lives and their learning and their, their classrooms. There's a lot to learn from how our people do things. So, yeah.
3: One of the main themes of your second paper was about gatekeepers. So, could you give mm. what what are these gatekeepers?
1: Well, you know we've all heard the term gatekeepers, have we? Have you?
3: Nods from around the table. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so, gatekeepers are, you know, they're everywhere. They're, when you're trying to implement something really great in your school, and the gatekeeper says, "No, that's not happening." Similarly for research. And but I want to sort of, I guess, point out that you know. It's mostly non-Indigenous people because unfortunately, you know, lots of Indigenous people aren't in positions of power to be able to make decisions. We know that. The, the statistics tell us that. But, you know, sometimes gatekeeping can happen from Indigenous communities as well. And sometimes it's, a, it's not a good thing and sometimes it is a good thing. But, yeah, it's in terms of being an, an Aboriginal person and trying to do research in your own community, it's, it's challenging.
0: I was kind of curious about the ethics process that you have to go through at a university Mm. and that's something that I've experienced as a researcher as well and had kind of noticed, I mean, it kind of comes across in your article a bit that there's certain assumptions in those ethical guidelines for working with Aboriginal communities and Mm. it seems like there's kind of this assumption that the communities are kind of almost separate, discrete bodies, and it doesn't really account for the way that Indigenous people are immersed in these really complex power relations with, you know, the organisations they belong to, whether it's, you know, government bureaucracies, educational institutions, and how that, you know, as you identify, it creates different layers of gatekeepers, and a lot of the time it's non-Indigenous people who have the most power within those organisations, and I was wondering whether you have any kind of insights about the ethics process and what could be done to make things better for indigenous researchers who yeah want to work with their community were there any particular things where you're you know going through the ethics approval and you're like that shouldn't be there that really needs to change
1: That's a really interesting question too Look when you do Indigenous research, whether you're non-Indigenous or Indigenous, it triggers on the form, it used to be called NEF. I can't remember the new acronym for it, but it triggers a whole series of questions, you know, that it makes it what's considered a high-risk project. So any, anything that involves Indigenous people. So it would be the same, you know, if you're working with children So under the age of 18 and i think that's a good thing because i think that researchers often see the ethics process as being a bit of a nuisance and something that is just taking up a lot of their time and and stopping them from going out and doing their research but when you look at the at the questions on those forms and sometimes it seems like they're repeating themselves but they're actually not and it's it's actually, a, it should be more than just, a, a, you know, filling out a form and trying to get your research done. It should be triggering you to any researcher to think about really deeply about what you're doing and what you might come across and how you might deal with that. And especially in, in not just Indigenous communities, I would say schools or working with young people, there's so many things that just happen in the field that you can't anticipate. But what that process does is it helps you to think about the things that may happen and preempt those a little bit more. So, and what's interesting is, yeah, so whether I'm Indigenous or not, I I do the exact same process and and I'm happy about that because it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to be more ethical because I am Indigenous. It means my experience is going to be quite different, but I don't think that the university system is ready to acknowledge our presence just yet i don't think we have massive numbers to say look you know if someone is indigenous and they're doing an indigenous project perhaps it should trigger some different questions because you know for us like as you you know i'm sure you all know you know we could be related to people or there could be different families conflicting or the different politics going on and they're the sorts of things that might come up for an Indigenous researcher that might not come up for a non-Indigenous researcher. But there's absolutely no way that that is addressed at the moment in those ethics processes.
3: That was the most positive appraisal of a ethics process I've ever heard. Usually researchers deride them, but good to hear. Good to hear the positive approach. <laughs> Another quote from, from your paper, you said, in the research context, we continue to see research that focuses on indigenous learners as the problem, an abundance of mm. research undertaken by non-Indigenous researchers researching the problematic other and an ongoing obsession with comparative scientific measurements of educational outcomes. And you reference Harrison, two thousand and seven there. And on the, the other day when we had a, a chat on the phone prior to this interview, mm. you mentioned you'd just come back from an international conference of indigenous researchers, if mm. I remember correctly. Yeah. And you talked about how hey, you've had some reflections since coming back from that conference about the way that we collect statistics on Indigenous people in Australia. So yeah, I'm really keen for you to, for you to talk a little bit more about this.
1: Yeah, so I was in Norway and so we were hosted by the, the Sami people who are the first peoples of of Norway, Finland, Sweden and also the top of Russia. And so we, you know, we talked to the Sami parliament and Sami researchers and also the Norwegian government about, you know, their policy approaches to see what we could learn. And one thing, one issue that really dominated this conference, so not just for Sami people, but for lots of other Indigenous people around the world, was the collection of data and who owns the data and how the data is represented. So in Australia, we tend to talk about, you know, how poorly... Our people are doing in lots of areas. So, health, education, incarceration rates, and things like that. And we can do that because we have the data to do that, right? So, wherever we are, we often get asked, Are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? And, you know, I hadn't stopped to think about that probably too much. Although, when I did my PhD, something that came out of findings fairly strongly was in flexi schools I found because I worked with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were undertaking educative roles in flexi schools and what came out of that was that only one of those participants had the term Indigenous or Aboriginal in their title and one of the findings was that they were experiencing lower levels of racism in comparison to, you know, studies that have been done on Indigenous people working in mainstream settings. So if you look at that, re- that body of research, people are talking about really high levels of, of racism in those mainstream settings. And in the mainstream settings, often Indigenous people are labelled as that. So the Aboriginal worker, the Indigenous worker, etc. So I had sort of, it hadn't been on my radar and I had, because I worked with critical race theory as well. So I do tend to, you know, bring race into my analysis of things, but I hadn't really thought about data. And what was really fascinating about Sami people in Norway is politically they have excellent representation, right? So they've got a Sami parliament, it's fully elected by Sami people, and then they ha- they have a voice in the Norwegian government. They're able to inform policies and things like that. I mean, we don't even have that here, yet we have so much data collected on, on us. And if you look at the MySchool website, for instance, we're the only race so-called race. We know that race is a social construct, but we're the only identified people that have our attendance monitored, our literacy and numeracy outcomes monitored and things like that so what at the conference people were debating was you know how helpful is this data and and what what purpose does it serve for both indigenous and non-indigenous people because it is serving non-indigenous people very well as well how well it continues to maintain this idea that you know that we're a problem that we're we're not doing very well and and as you said all this sort of earlier when people hear those statistics they think well you know, can't they stop offending or why can't they just finish school? Gee, they're problematic, aren't they? They can't even sit in a classroom. So they're the sorts of ways in which it impacts on how Aboriginal people are, are constructed. So that's, you know, we're positioned in a particular way. And that happens politically. It happens through the media. It has, Schools are really great sources of those constructs and teachers sometimes accidentally represent those things in their classrooms.
3: Definitely. Did you did you see any stories from other nations or do you have any ideas of your own about how data could be collected in a better way or not be collected at all or just be handled in a way that's, that's more empowering for Indigenous people?
2: I haven't
1: seen an example where it, Indigenous mob were saying, hey, this is really working for me. It was sort of, you know, one or the other, you know, we don't have any data and that's problematic for us because then we can't advocate and the government will say, oh, they're doing really well on this, but they don't actually have the data. And then you have, you know, Australia is is a really particular example when you look at Indigenous peoples around the world in in how far behind we are in terms of rights and outcomes and things like that. So, yeah, I think I really would like to see more, emphasis on that and more debate on that it's something that i suppose teachers don't have a lot of say in you know indigenous kids are enrolled sorry are identified at the enrollment process so at the beginning when they enroll in the school and sometimes teachers aren't necessarily even aware of if a young person is indigenous in their classrooms it depends on the school as to what they do with that they do receive more funding for it my next lot of work I'm really wanting to do is pursue the lines of inquiry around where all this funding goes. So we know that Indigenous young people are enrolled, they tick the box, schools receive a certain amount of funding around that, then we don't know where it
0: goes. So mm. I
3: have
0: to put my detective hat on.
3: Mm. Um,
0: I had a question. It's I guess you've kind of answered it a little bit with what you just said, but. There's a point in your paper where you say evidence is mounting that we currently have an education workforce who self-identify their deficiencies and lack of understanding about Indigenous peoples and issues. And my question is, how important is that evidence and what other kinds of evidence are really important in terms of making improvements for Indigenous students? So you kind of, yeah, you mentioned that thing about, you know, where does the funding go? And that's a really important you know, piece of evidence that could be used. Is there any other kind of research priorities that you can think of?
1: Yeah, so I teach into pre-service programs that are linked to the Atesil standards, or standards one point four and two point four. So that is to try and sort of, you know, train the teachers of the future, you know, to know how to do this work. You know, that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah, to do that with undergrad and postgrad students, but. You know, I do a lot of consulting work in schools as well and it really is the same old story. It gets a little bit, yeah, tiring hearing the same thing in that, you know, but, but I also feel for, for teachers because there's there's some really excellent teachers out there, non indigenous, that really wanna make a difference. They really want to do the work in, in a good way. And they're trying to find good programs to access or professional development and it's really difficult to access quality programs i think i've taken this on a really different track to the original question
0: so well the question i guess like there were two questions so how important is that evidence and Mm. yeah i'm wondering you know how might that be applied do you think that could be used to pressure governments to put more funding into teacher training or university courses to improve what they're doing and then there was a second question which was about you know what are the is really important what are the other priority areas for indigenous researchers in education
1: yeah. yeah the the evidence is important and it actually has helped inform policy so those eight standards didn't change themselves there was a whole lot of you know advocacy that went on and, and research and stuff behind that and also the cross curriculum priority so embedding aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges is now a, a priority how it's implemented though on both Front is another thing and to me that that should be a priority is seeing what impact those policy changes have had so the government should quite rightfully be proud that they've made those changes but you know I'm out in schools quite a lot you know I teach I've got a master's cohort at the moment some have been working in schools some have been working in other workplaces and it's really a similar story on all fronts in that we don't know anything about Australian history. You know, we don't know how to do these standards. And so in terms of, you know, writing and teaching these, these courses at university, it's very difficult for me because I'm working with people who don't even really have a background on colonisation and the past policies and, you know, sort of starting from scratch. And then you're trying to get them to be able to embed Indigenous knowledges And also work through their personal positioning around, you know, their confidence in doing Indigenous work or engaging with Indigenous communities. Because often, you know, it it is that someone has the motivation and goodwill and intent, but they just don't have the confidence, which is an indictment on the Australian education system, let's face it, that people just aren't learning about this history.
3: A question I did have is I've had many discussions with people about things that should and shouldn't be in the curriculum of teacher education. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many issues that are obviously very pressing to our society. You know, there's the plight of refugees, there's climate change, which I particularly think is, is a massive one. There's animal rights, which many people are also very passionate about. So I was really keen to ask, why do you think it is that Indigenous education should be in the curriculum And what would you say to people who argue that, for example, this is just another kind of thing, another thing that some people care about and and they want to have their kind of hobby horse in there as well?
1: Yeah. I suppose I would say two things to that. The first is that this is Australian history. We all are on this country, right? And we all consider ourselves Australian. And this isn't Aboriginal history. This is Australian history, which dates back you know, to 60,000 years. Australia just didn't happen in the last 200 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been here for a really, really, really long time. And we are part of that history. We are part of the Australian narrative. So I think, you know, to to say that it's not important is, it's quite disturbing that people would want to, you know, pick and choose what part of Australian history that they like shared And, and it's very limiting to be honest it's a not truthful and b it's not enriching it's not it's not full it's not whole and I think that's really unfair to you know our next generation you know to not have that knowledge like this generation who I deal with at uni all the time and I really feel for them and in fact you know Sometimes I think, oh, is it just, you know, people who went to school, you know, even 10 years ago? But I'm getting, we get people that have just graduated from school even two, three years ago and and they still know nothing. They still think that Australia was settled and Captain Cook came and had a little tea party with Aboriginal people and it was all la-di-da. I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite bizarre really. And the second point I would make on this is in some ways it, it lacks empathy this this idea that we you know wouldn't want to know about it or it's not important and it also lacks empathy you know for all of the other causes important causes right so we do have a, a serious issue with refugees we've got a huge issue with race that doesn't just impact on aboriginal and torres strait islander people it impacts on lots of you know non white people in australia we're in this absolutely changing climate and and lots of things going on so i think you know do we need to create this minority competitiveness and say you know one we should why are we prioritizing one issue or you know why can't we address all of the issues i don't think we need to pick and choose what's more important or you know what's a priority everything should be a priority and we do actually you know try and address lots of these different issues that are going on in our world
0: I thought I might just give you a bit of the context behind that question and some of the experiences that we've had here. So two of us have had the experience of creating a petition amongst students who are studying teaching to try and get Indigenous education made a compulsory subject because at the teacher training course I was at at Melbourne University, they had an elective subject you could do. And aside from that, it was really not of you know, very well incorporated into the rest of the course. Mm-hmm. And you'd only get about 30, 40 people of, you know, cohort of hundreds doing that elective. And, you know, what I found is that, you know, they weren't necessarily responsive. So the thing that Oliver just said there is something that was coming from people high up within the university who were saying, well, there are so many other important issues. We don't have space to have this as a compulsory subject. And so I think, yeah, it's really, I mean, your reaction is, you know, similar to ours and it's its really yeah. awful to think that that's coming from people really high up as well who are making decisions about what teachers learn and that evidence that you found of teachers feeling like they weren't really prepared, that's mm. something that I found as well because in conjunction with the petition, the people who organised it with me, we went around and surveyed people and said, how well do you feel prepared to teach Indigenous students or to teach students about Indigenous history and culture, which is what we mentioned the or standards require us to do. And they were saying, well, not very prepared at all. Like mm. people don't feel like teachers are going out there, not feeling like they're ready for this.
1: Yeah, look, that doesn't surprise me, that attitude. And I've heard it like in waves throughout my life from various, you know, organisations and things I've worked with. Yeah, that that line doesn't surprise me. It comes up all the time, you know. So before you know, marriage equality, it was you know what. But what about gay people? And what about this person? What about that person? And really, it's just a distraction from you know people's agendas. And I do think it is really sad. I'm I'm very cautious about how I frame teachers in in this picture. Obviously, teachers we know play one of the greatest impacts on student outcomes. But because of these. Systemic issues and the attitude of lots of people that make decisions—not just you know at this particular university, but lots of institutions. Look at our you know current government and the decisions they're making around Indigenous policy approaches. I'm very hesitant to sort of critique teachers too much because I, I do think that universities can improve their their training, and I also think it's just not enough. So I, I run a whole course and it is compulsory. So at my institution, it's currently compulsory and it's connected. So when we register our programs to, you know, to all of the eights of standards and having the eights of standards there gives, you know, it's given lots of people who teach in teacher education programs leverage to say, you know, we need this. We have to address this. But as I said, the issue when you're writing the courses and you're delivering the programs is people come with such limited knowledge. To get them to that place at the end of nine or ten weeks is is really difficult. So, you know, to give you an example, in my master's course I'm running at the moment, I included an assessment where I got them to create a future professional development plan. You know, I was up front with them at the start and I said, there's no way you're going to know what you need to know by the end of the course this is you know really introductory and you're going to have to as you know professionals who are passionate and interested in contributing positively to this you're going to have to create your own destiny here you're going to have to you know do your own reading you're going to have to find your own resources engage with indigenous community make relationships with indigenous people because schools i can't promise you are doing that and they're you know, not gonna necessarily prioritize it.
2: I was just thinking about one of the points I wrote down from one of your articles around teacher training, and that was sort of talking about the lack of reflection and understanding about the self and how that sort of affects people's choices they make as teachers. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate a bit on what you mean by that and why you think it's important. And also, you know, given that that's something missing from teacher training, what we can do as teachers now to kind of think about that to improve the way that we interact with students?
1: Yeah, so again, I'll, I'll go back to the course I'm teaching at the moment. You know, I have a critical self-reflection task in that I ask students to think about some materials and I have, you know, lots of community people come in. I have elders and I have other Indigenous educators, so there's lots of Indigenous voices in the content. And also, obviously, a wide range of readings, including Indigenous and non-Indigenous authors. And then I asked them to think about particular things that just sort of made them not comfortable or just really stood out to them. And then engage in a process of thinking about, you know, what was it that just, why did you, why do you think you had that reaction? What was it about that particular topic? What was your previous knowledge about it? What were your past experiences with it? And then think about how you might apply that reflection in, in the future. So it's just being open to that type of reflection. And, and, you know, it's it's hard because you've got to be a bit vulnerable, don't you, to admit that, you know, hey, I, I thought that. That sounds bad, but that's what I was thinking or that's what I was feeling. But it's part of, you know, our, our personal growth to, to engage in thinking that way.
3: Something you mentioned before kind of struck me, and that was about the the real low numbers of Indigenous education researchers and researchers more generally in Australia. I was wondering if you could highlight for us what you perceive as some some of the main barriers to Indigenous people becoming researchers and if like say you had a million bucks or you say you had a whole heap of resources, how would you use those resources to, to increase the number of Indigenous researchers in Australia?
1: that's that's an interesting question I I think that you know there's a couple of reasons for it I mean first and foremost we we still aren't at parity with educational outcomes so you know a lot of our people aren't still aren't finishing school for lots of different reasons so university just might not be a you know pathway or an option for them I think the big thing for, for me was just not having anyone in my family who had ever been to uni if you haven't got that sort of social and cultural capital it's really difficult to imagine yourself going to university to study and I think you know similarly being an academic I've just sort of I've had you know at times just no idea about the you know what I was doing in terms of the social and cultural protocols within a university environment because I just I didn't grow up with people who had been to uni. That's not my background. It comes from a, a low socioeconomic background and not, and not around people who had, had been to universities. And then adjusting yourself and navigating that system without that capital is, is hard, but it's, it is doable. Obviously, there's you know, lots of Indigenous people now. Not lots. I'd like to see more Indigenous academics now. I've had great mentoring from both within universities, from Indigenous and non-Indigenous academics, and also mentoring from elders in the community that, you know, really supported me and wanted to see me, you know, go through and hopefully contribute to making a difference. If I had a million dollars, I don't know, you know, I think where the changes need to happen are systemic because there's Mm. so, so much talent and intellectualism that exists in our communities. You know, I think a lot of our people are thinkers and philosophers and and really interested in, you know, in learning and research. But the the issues are, are really racialized and they're very systemic. And I don't know if a million bucks would really fix it at this stage.
3: <laughs> got it, got it. No, appreciate
1: it.
3: Two, three, yeah. Ten million dollars? No, okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. And finally, on in terms of this, this second paper, I wanted to come back to the research question that you posed yourself mm. and ask you, are Aboriginal researchers able to conduct research that is motivated by their agendas, ideas and aspirations in a discipline that perpetuates imperialism, racism and exclusion?
1: In a limited way, yeah, but the really disruptive stuff or questions that we need to ask, getting access and and funding to do that, I haven't been successful as as yet I've got one grant in at the moment which is really focused on mapping you know current Indigenous education policy to you know really diverse voices of Indigenous people from diverse communities diverse positions and seeing what the difference is because the dismantling of you know things like ASPA committees I don't know if you guys are familiar with you know back in the 90s, they were, you know they were made up of people from the community, from elders, parents, and community people, and, and they were involved in decision making. You know, at the school, and they would be able to you know make decisions about you know what programs were being implemented, perhaps what research was going on. But all of those ways in which Indigenous people were involved in decision making, particularly in education and schools, have been dismantled. I don't know if any of your schools have, you know, regular engagement with Indigenous people that have consulted around curriculum or, you know, any of those sorts of areas. No.
3: No, head's shaking. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think that sort of research, I think, would, would have a high impact because it's really going to, to the heart of the problem. But, yeah, whether, whether it gets funded or not is another, another question. We find out in, I think it's early November. Mm.
3: Fingers crossed. Yes. We might move into some closing questions now, Mani, if that's okay with you.
1: Yeah, great.
3: If you could go back in time and offer advice to your and I'm I'm gonna split this into two parts, your first year teach yourself and your first year research yourself, what would you say?
1: I think I'd say the same thing. And that is just, you know, just be true to yourself and, and listen. Do a lot of listening. Don't do as much talking. Next
3: question. What's your what's your information diet? Who do you follow? Is there anyone, I'm not sure if you hook into Twitter or not, anyone on Twitter you follow, any academics, mm. indigenous or otherwise, who you suggest we check out the works of, you know, email lists, journal journal articles or publications. Mm. Or or more broadly, I'm I'm keen to open this up. Any other any books or resources on kind of authentic Australian history that mm. you would recommend to listeners today?
1: Yeah, so I'm a a big fan of Dr. Anita Heiss, and I'm actually very fortunate to be chairing a session with her on the weekend at the Brisbane Writers' Festival. But Anita is a Wiradjuri author, and she's written quite a few books that would be of interest to teachers. And her recent one is called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, and it's an edited book. And it's got, I think, about 30 stories from really diverse Aboriginal people about what it was like growing up Aboriginal in Australia. And it's an excellent teaching resource. And it's also an excellent resource for teachers and professional development because I wrote the teaching notes for it. And so when I was reading the book, one of the, the issues that kept coming up throughout the, the different stories was, you know, their negative experiences of school around their identity. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot in that that teachers can really learn from. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not a Twitter person. I rarely touch Facebook. So I'm not really a social media person. I do I love Professor Bronwyn Frederick's work. So Bronwyn is uh, she's worked in both health and education and she's got some great work research out there that's worth looking at. Grace Sara, Associate Professor Grace Sarah, so I work with Grace. We're currently research together. And she's doing some excellent work. You might be interested in this, Ollie, around um, maths. So um, yeah. she works on a program called You, Me, Deadly Maths. Someone in Melbourne, Professor Jo Lampert. So Joe supervised my PhD and Joe is at Latrobe. She coordinates the Indigenous education pre-service teacher programs there. And she's done some excellent work. She did a program around exceptional teachers for disadvantaged schools. So, yeah. There's lots of great people out there, isn't
3: there? That's awesome, and potentially, I'm um, yeah. that growing up Indigenous in Australia book sounds really interesting, and pot- potentially a future E Triple episode. We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, look, Anita's fantastic. Highly recommend her. Yeah,
3: fantastic. What's next for Marnie Shea? What What's on the horizon for you? What are you excited about? Which projects are coming up? Let us know.
1: So I have a couple of ARC projects that are being considered at the moment, but. You know, the chances of getting them aren't particularly good, but, you know, you've got to be in it to win it. Actually. So, yeah, so there's the policy project. I'm really excited about my role, particularly in the, poli- the new Centre for Policy Futures at UQ. So it's it's helping me to think as a researcher in, in different ways around engaging with, you know, research end users and, you know, and having an impact and, and getting my research out there in in what we consider non-traditional ways. So, our, you know, journal articles and things like that are really important, but it's also thinking about, you know, other ways of of having an impact and affecting change in some way. And not being a social media person, that's, you know, obviously an easy way to, to get it out there, but I'm pretty determined to resist that. So, yeah, I'm I'm getting quite creative about how to do that. But the conversation was a really good example of something that I wouldn't normally have done. Mm. But, you know, my role in the policy centre really sort of, yeah, got me thinking about outlets like that. And so the other ARC is around working with or transitions for Aboriginal kids in remote communities, and that one's based in WA. That's a colleague
2: in WA, but we don't know if
1: we've got those yet. That's a, the that's a fun thing about being a researcher. You can have all these great ideas and all these things in the pipeline and some things, you know, you get funded for and, and some things you don't. So, yeah.
3: Hopefully some of the grant application reviewers are listening today and they can hear how great your ideas are, Money.
1: Oh, thanks, Ollie.
3: Finally, any last calls to action for listeners or anything you'd like listeners to go away and do?
1: I suppose just take the initiative to engage and to, to learn. As I said, especially for teachers, the opportunities for professional development aren't in abundance. So again, it's it's just taking the opportunity to to sit down and, and read a book. I mean, Anita that book I told you about just then, Anita's book is a fantastic example, but there's so many more out there. We have this amazing emerging group of Indigenous authors that are doing fiction, nonfiction. We have social indigenous people have a really strong presence on social media. I know about this and you should be impressed because I don't even do Twitter. But there's something called Indigenous X. Mm. I don't know if you follow it. Yeah. Yeah, so I know that they have lots of different Indigenous voices and guest speakers on, on that. Do you call it a channel or I'm not sure?
3: I think it's a, a Twitter account. And my understanding <laughs> okay. is they have a they have a different person operating the account each, it might be a week or a month or something like that, a different indig- Indigenous person. Does that sound right to you?
1: yeah i'm not too sure but that that would be really great if they're doing that because yeah that's the thing you know like it's it's engaging with lots of different indigenous voices and perspectives as well because one take home is that we're just not a a homogenous group you know we're lots of different countries nations language groups and so yeah it's really about understanding that and engaging with with lots of indigenous people as many as you can
3: fantastic well Dr. Shea, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a long and rich discussion. We started out talking about flexi-schools. I was particularly struck, and I'm going to try this in my own classroom, thinking about principles rather than rules was quite powerful. Yeah. I found the idea of preventative eating to be uh, <laughs> very interesting. I might give that a go, a go as well. And then we move on to issues such as hearing about some of your experiences as, as a researcher. We heard your positive take on the ethics process. I was interested also about your your idea of structuring an assignment within your Indigenous education program around developing a professional development plan to acknowledge the fact that we're not going to learn everything there is to know about Australian history in kind of nine to ten weeks. Yeah. I've posed a lot of, or the whole group here has posed a lot of hard questions for you, so I really appreciate you taking them on. And you've given us some great things to follow up in terms of future learning as well. So Dr Manishé, thank you so much for joining us today on the ERRR. Thanks, Olly. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR Podcast with Dr. Marnie Shea. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the costs of room hire and sound engineering. Check out patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to explore the possibility of supporting the show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning.